We have been uh, together journeying our way through uh, Leviticus, uh, and we are in uh, chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6 this morning. Um, if you want to follow along with us in one of the black Bibles there in your, your seats, this is on page, we'll be on page 84 this morning. Just kind of to, to set the, the stage for us as we look at this next type of offering. Remember, we've been uh, the beginning of Exodus, or, I mean, Exodus, beginning of Leviticus highlights the, the five major types of offerings. And different, as we proceed later on uh, through the book, we'll see ways that those are specifically applied. But it's important for us to know and understand how these offerings take place and what they're where they are to teach to the, the people in God's kingdom, realizing that He is the true King um, that they are following and worshiping. Um, and so this morning we're looking at what is called the guilt offering. Sometimes it's also called the reparation offering. Um, and so that's where we'll be the, this morning. Um, but uh, it might be helpful as we get started to think, uh, think about this. Remember, uh, God is, is King, and so the way that uh, he established his, his kingdom by this covenant relationship as he redeemed Israel out of Egypt and made them his, his people to demonstrate his kingdom in the world, one of the things that, that how they were to respond was in trust and love and obedience to, uh, to him. Uh, to embrace their calling as this unique group of people that were to reflect the goodness and the beauty of God to the nations that, that surrounded them. Well, what happens if you don't reflect well the honor and dignity of your, your king? What if you bring shame upon, upon him? What might be the consequences? Well, uh, in other nations around our world, even today, there are certain consequences that, that come up for uh, dishonoring the king or, or the ruler. Listen to, listen to some of these. In, in Lebanon, if you uh, uh, publish a material that undermines the dignity of the president or the republic, um, you could get some prison time and you could also be fined anywhere between... Uh, uh, 50 million and 100 million Lebanese pounds, which would equate to 33 to 66,000 U.S. dollars. Um, if you're in the, the Netherlands, um, if you uh, insult or uh, disparage the dignity of the, the monarch there, um, you could end up being uh, fined um, uh, what would be the equivalent of around 20 to 22,000 U.S. dollars for the fine of uh, of dishonoring the 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 monarch there. There's several African countries that also have laws against sedition, um, which think as you hear that word sedition, think conduct or speech that would incite or encourage others to rebel or uh, um, not follow after uh, the the king or the leader. Those could result in uh, various ones, um, could result in um, uh, fines of up to 42,000 U.S. dollars. Um, and in Bahrain, anyone who publicly offends the, the kingdom's uh, monarch, um, you could get imprisoned 
or again be uh, uh, fined up to uh, twenty-six to twenty. Uh, Twenty-six or twenty-seven thousand U.S. dollars. You see, these these nations, as they establish these consequences, are trying to communicate something. Their rules and their laws uh, are communicating something about the role of the the king and also the role of the people and their responsibility as being those that follow after them. Um, that you should live a life through your speech, through your actions, that don't just uh, not disrespect the king, but hopefully it would go even further that other people would would want to also give honor to the, the king or the ruler because of the way that they see the citizens of this kingdom living. And in order to reinforce that, because sometimes just seeing uh, words on a... Uh, on a, on a poster, or if you read the rule book of your, of your kingdom, it doesn't always sink in. And so uh, sometimes consequences are necessary to, in, to communicate the depth of how important following these, uh, these rules are, especially when it comes to, to honoring the king. Um, now, some of this may, may sound um, uh, strange to, to us in the U.S., where uh, the idea of free speech is something that's, uh, that's celebrated. Uh, but in Israel's uh, time period as well, throughout that uh, region and the, the worldview at the, at the time, was this was very common. You do not dishonor your king. And if you do, there are great and significant consequences depending on how severe the dishonor goes. And so remember, this would also take place if you were a, a conquering uh, kingdom who conquered lesser, weaker nations, and now they are in this covenant relationship with you. You are providing protection and care for them. Their response should be one of love and respect. Love, I might be a little far stretching for kingdoms, but uh, of trust and, and, and honor as you... Uh, work within this relationship. And when you begin to throw it off through your actions or through your uh, through the things that you're saying, there would be fines and uh, and consequences that you would need to, to, to pay back to this king reparations in order to repair and reestablish the relationship, because if not, it's viewed as rebellion and it's it's thrown off. Um, and so. As we look at uh, this guilt offering this morning, it's important for us to keep those kind of concepts in mind. Absolute allegiance is to be given to the king. You're to be focused on honoring him, on respecting him, on loving him. And if not, there are serious consequences and punishments that would result if you do uh, dishonor and bring uh, shame or disrespect to him or to his uh, his his kingdom. So, if you would, let's look in uh, chapter five of the book of Leviticus. We're going to be going from uh, verse fourteen in chapter five through verse seven of chapter six. So that's on page uh, eighty-four in the Black Bible that you have there in front of you. If you're looking along. Uh, with us. So please follow along with me as we hear from uh, from God's word this morning. 
Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of Yahweh, he shall bring to Yahweh as his compensation, a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. Uh, and for verse 19, some of you may notice that there is uh, a footnote, and that, I believe, is a better translation of this last phrase, and so we're going to follow along with, with that. Uh, it is a guilt offering. He has paid full compensation uh, to Yahweh. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Yahweh spoke to Moses again, saying, uh, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against Yahweh by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to Yahweh a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before Yahweh, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you and we thank you that you uh, care about your people. Um, you care to, to, to teach us, uh, to disciple us, uh, to show us what you value, what we uh, need in this world. And we thank you that we don't have to figure that out on our own, but you've given us your word. And we pray that you would, Holy Spirit, apply uh, the very word of God to our hearts this morning. Change us, uh, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so uh, if we think about uh, God as our, our king, um, or as uh, another way that the scriptures have, have talked about it in Exodus uh, as well, God as our father, that's how he viewed uh, um, uh, Israel, then the, the ways that, that the rules that he puts in place, the ways and the things that he's trying to do are, are a means to, to teach them and shape their actions and their hearts, um, just like parents do with their with their children. We, we put rules and consequences in place to help guide and shape their their living, discipling them. And that's what God is doing here. Uh, with the, the rules and the, the laws that he's given uh, to Israel here in, uh, in Leviticus. And so we want to look at a couple of the things, particularly with this offering, this sacrifice that's different from the four that we've looked at previously. What is it that God's trying to communicate uh, to his people through this 
rule, through this law, through this sacrifice. Um, the first thing that we can, we can see that, that God is wanting to, to impress upon His people through this regulation is to communicate something to them about the nature of sin. Sin, remember, we, we've talked about it in, in terms of, of rebellion. And in fact, that's what we see here. God wants us to understand all sin is against God. Notice how it communicates this. Even as we, we start in verse 14, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, and then in verse 15, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in the holy things. Sin, uh, as this, uh, this offering is, is trying to, to, to inform us and give us a perspective on it, is viewed as a breach of faith. Uh, other places where that terminology is used is in the context of, of adultery, uh, of, of unfaithfulness. And if we think about our relationship with God, even though we, he, is, uh, he is king, it's a loving, kind relationship. And to view sinning against him as a, as a breach of, of faith, it's a covenant relational violation against him. Um, and uh, n- notice how it's, it's talking about it here. If, if you sin and you commit a breach of faith uh, against, uh, against the Lord in any of the holy things of Yahweh, um, so we'll, we'll learn more about these categories of holy and unholy, most holy, uh, as we go through Leviticus. But the holy things were things that were set apart for special purposes by God, either for His worship or in times that are set apart for, um, for those who are uh, in this um, special set-apart uh, way, like the priest, to serve uh, God before him in the, in the tabernacle. So for instance, remember we've read about the, the peace offering. Um, we've read about other, like the grain offering, where uh, particularly with the grain offering more so than the peace offering. With the grain offering, when you brought some of the grain to the Lord, there was a memorial portion that was burned, and then the rest of the grain that you brought went to the priests. That was considered a holy portion. The offerer was not allowed to eat of those. Those had been set aside by God for a special purpose and a special place. And so those were to be eaten only by the priests. Um, with the peace offering, for instance, the, what was left over was not considered a holy thing in the same way because the offerer could eat with it, a meal that God hosted. But we saw last week with the purification offering that um, uh, the offerer didn't eat some of that food. But again, some of the meat was left over and set aside for the priest and the priest could eat it. So the, the way to view it is, is that it's God's stuff. And he says, who can do what, what with it? So if you happen to violate and uh, wrongly use those holy set-apart things for your own purposes, you've done something with God's property, against God's property. And the way that it's understanding this is uh, what's happening is the way that you've treated or mistreated, whether intentional or not, God's stuff is actually an offense against Him. You have uh, violated uh, and... um, and sinned or been unfaithful to, uh, to God. 
Uh, notice as, as well that as it, as it says this in verse, uh, in verse 17, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by, the, by, the, by Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done. And it goes on and you, you realize your guilt. You'll, you know, you're bearing your iniquity. The understanding is that sin is this, this violation, whether intentional or not. It's rebellion. It's breach of faith. It's living unfaithfully, unfaithfully with the, within this relationship with God. Maybe that, that makes sense to us if it's a direct violation against God. I mean, it's his stuff. It was set apart. He says with this stuff, only the priest can, can have it. Or you were to give over the fat portions to me and maybe you forgot or you ate them improperly. Um, that makes sense. Okay, we've directly sinned against God. He's the one we've wronged. But notice what else the, the guilt offering here or the reparation offering communicates. Notice in verse uh, in um, uh, chapter six, as it goes on, not only what is sins directly against God from our perspective, a sin against God, but also the way that this is talking about is when we sin against others, we sin against God. Notice as it goes on in, in verse 2 and following. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against Yahweh by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or oppression, if he found something lost and lied about it or swearing falsely, and any of all these things that people do and sin thereby, if he sinned and realized his guilt, and it goes on. It says, when you rob or steal or lie or sin against your neighbor, you've actually sinned against God as well. It's not just them that you've wronged. That sin is also directly a covenant violation, unfaithfulness before God. Notice how it communicates this, not just in words, but in the response. Notice in verse 15 what it calls for. When you've in chapter five, verse 15, when you sin directly against God and from our perspective with the holy things, it tells us in verse 15, part of what you need to do is bring a ram for compensation. That's a, a, a reparation term. This is uh, something that you're paying back to God and or as your fine in order to settle up the wrong you've done against him for breaching this this faith. Notice here, as it talks about it, it's particularly this. It's a ram in each of these scenarios, a male ram, and it needs to be evaluated by the priest according to the shekel of the, the sanctuary to make sure it's of proper value to fulfill the fine, the proper fine of the compensation and paying back God, the king, for sinning against him. Uh, the same thing comes up in uh, verse 5 of chapter 6. When you've sinned against someone else, it talks about it of uh, bringing your, in verse 6 of chapter 6, you shall bring to the priest as compensation to Yahweh a lamb from the flock, and it goes on. The idea is that you are sinning against God regardless of whether you've thought I've directly sinned against God or not, but I lied to my neighbor, but I hurt my neighbor. That wasn't against God. The, the guilt offering would say, oh, you're confused. You don't understand properly. 
every time you sin or do wrong, it is God against whom you are sinning. And the way that it views it is in this this way of seeing sin as putting us in debt to God. Because you've sinned, you owe him a fine. You owe him compensation for what it is that you have done. In this instance here, God is as providing and saying the compensation given back will be this ram. But that's something for us to think about. Uh, a ram. Remember back to the, the fines that we, we read about in Lebanon and the Netherlands? Some of those we thought were, I mean, it's significant money. Anywhere from... $70,000 to $20,000. It seems like what, what that's communicating is the, the honor of the, the monarch and sinning or wronging, dishonoring them with it should come uh, a comparable fine. Because notice, that within uh, Bahrain, for instance, if I insult my neighbor... There's not a $25,000 fine for doing that. The fine goes along with the, um, the, the person whose honor you've wronged. The greater their honor and their status, the more indebted you are and owe compensation back. So let's take the, the most valuable one that we, uh, we looked at. I think it was $75,000, $76,000. And um, it was... Uh, for, well, it was actually $66,000 in Lebanon. Do you think the, the ruler of Lebanon is worth more honor than the creator of all things? No. So, would our rightful compensation back to our God for violating against Him, would it make sense just in the human scale of relating things that our fine and what we owe God, our debt that we are because of sin against Him, would be greater or lesser in value? It would be much more. Much, much more. Think about how much greater is God and His honor and His glory and His dignity and His worth and the king of Lebanon, the monarch of the Netherlands, the queen of England, president of the United States. Infinite, infinite. So uh, several years ago, um, there was a guy in New Hampshire and he went and uh, purchased some cigarettes at a local uh, convenience store. And uh, when he got... Uh, when he got home, uh, a few hours later, he's looking at his bank account and he realized that um, he was, had overdrawn his account by 23 quadrillion dollars. 23 quadrillion dollars. Um, and so his bank uh, rightfully fined him $15 overdraft fee. Listen to what, what happened. This guy, uh, his name was Josh. Um, uh, it was, uh, the, the fine was 23 quadrillion, 148 trillion, 855 billion, 308 million, 184,000, 
$500. That's quite a significant debt that our friend Josh has for uh, uh, overdrafting um, his account. Now, now get this. If we're thinking infinite dishonor to the infinitely honorable God, how much do we really owe? Do you think, would you ever be able to pay back 23 quadrillion dollars? We have a very scientific book at home called How Much is a Million? And in it, there's an important section of this of how tremendous is a trillion. And did you know that if a trillion kids stood on top of each other, they would reach way, 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 way beyond the moon and beyond Mars and Jupiter too, almost as far as Saturn's rings. And get this, if you wanted to count just to one trillion, it would take you 200,000 years. Just to count to one trillion, 200,000 years. If we couldn't even count high enough and we would die before we reached high enough to think about what would be an adequate fine to have to be owed back to our infinite God, then do you ever think you would be able to repay it? If you can't even count there without dying, would you ever be able to work it off and pay it back? What the Scriptures are telling us is that you, through your sin, are indebted to your God. You owe Him a debt you couldn't even count, much less begin to pay off. We are to view and understand our sin against God as indebtedness. And it would call us to begin to rethink, all right, and we'll get to this later, I'm bringing a a ram? How, How does this match up with the great honor and value and worth of our King? We'll get back to that a little bit later. So not only are we being taught something about the nature of our of sin, that when we sin, regardless of who it's against, it's a sin against God, and that now we're indebted due to our sin. We owe God something. Also, what it's wanting to, to teach us through the, this guilt offering is the nature of repentance, or the nature of our response to sin. Um, we, we find out from other, uh, other places within uh, Leviticus and in Numbers how this, more the details of how this uh, offering would have taken place. And it was very similar to the other ones. You know, you would lay your hands on the, the animal that, would, uh, that, would, that you're bringing forward. And, an act and part of what that is, is is an act of confession and acknowledging your sin. But notice, the, the guilt offering goes further. You see, just confession and acknowledging your sin, it's saying, isn't, isn't enough. Also, what, what that would mean is that, you know, a lot of times in here it talks about, uh, you know, realizing or, or coming to understand or know your guilt. Look in verse 17. Although you, it ought not to be done, 
uh, it comes to known him and he realizes his guilt. Uh, this comes up in uh, in several several places here and in other uh, other aspects of these these sacrifices. Um, remorse, feeling uh, a sense of of grief over your your sin. It's not. It's still not 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 enough. It's not it's not complete. Confession and remorse doesn't quite go far enough. Repentance is necessary. The guilt offering would teach us. It's important to be ones who respond to our sin appropriately with repentance. And repentance is, is an act that shows forth its evidence. We see the fruit of repentance through our lives. It, it involves action in response to our sin. Notice how this comes up in verse 16. So let's say you violated some of the holy things. You ate something you weren't, you weren't supposed to or took something you weren't supposed to. It tells you you shall make restitution for it. You're supposed to pay it back. But notice what it says. You need to give back what you took wrongly, but it also says you need to add a fifth to it. You need to add another 20% to what it is that you've you've taken. It's the same thing uh, in verse 5 when you sin against other people. When you realize it, you need to restore it in full and give them back another 20%. The idea is that you're realizing the implications of your sin and your wrong. And you're saying, not only am I confessing that I did wrong, um, not only am I feeling the, the, the effects of my guilt and my, the burden of my sin, but I'm, I'm doing what is right to, uh, to pay back and try to restore what error I've done and who I've harmed and who I've hurt by giving another five or another fifth back. God is saying it's it's not just about you acknowledging your sin. It's not just about you feeling bad. I'm looking for repentance. I'm looking for your heart and your actions to come together and for you to to change. But notice, notice in here how important repentance is for the guilt offering. Notice that repentance must take place before atonement and forgiveness occur. Look in verse 16. You bring this ram without blemish. It says in verse 16 or verse 15, then in verse 16, you make the restitution for what you've done or repentant. You repent of it. And then the priest will make atonement for you. Look in, over in verse five. Verse four and five, when you find out that you've sinned against someone else, you'll restore what you took. You'll restore it in full and add a fifth to it and then give it to him to whom it belongs on the day that you realize your guilt. And then you shall bring to the priest your compensation to the Lord, a ram without blemish. The priest will make atonement for him before Yahweh and he will be forgiven for all of for any of the things one may do and thereby become guilty. Repentance precedes forgiveness is what the guilt offering teaches us. Hold, hold on a minute. How, how does that work with the stuff that we've been talking about before? We've talked about God being a gracious God. He's the one who is taking the action. Is, is repentance here now viewed as a work? We have to pay God before He will forgive us? This seems to confuse things. This doesn't make sense that He would require repentance for forgiveness or atonement to take place. 
But actually, it's, it, it, maybe it's helpful to view it like this. This is our sin. Josh, I want you to come over here and we'll find somewhere where we're not going to knock a bunch of stuff over. Josh, I want you to take your sin and hold it. So Josh is holding on. He's gripping on to his sin. It's burdening him. Pretend like you're burdened. Okay? So here I am, God the King. And Josh, you, uh, I want you to come and, and, and embrace me. You see, your, your, it, your sin is in the way. In order for you to embrace God in faith, you must put your sin down, release it, so that now your arms are open and free to, by faith, be embraced and to embrace your God and your King. This is what the guilt offering is teaching us. When your arms and your life and your heart are full of and holding on to your sin, you cannot hold on and grip and love your God. He's saying, let it go. Put it aside. Put it away. Repent. Let go of this and turn and freely embrace me by faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't do one without the other. God is saying, in order for forgiveness to come, repentance must occur. Your life must make a difference. Here it's showing itself by turning from your sin, acknowledging what you've done, and giving back what you've taken plus some to show my life is being changed. I'm acknowledging what I've done, and I'm going to act differently in light of this. What does that mean for us, though? I mean, we're we're not bring. I did not say, hey, guys, we're confessing our sin this morning. Bring up your goats. I mean, bring up your rams. Bring up your compensation. What what does it mean for us? Things function differently now. We'll look at this here as we, we wrap up with with Jesus on the scene. But what does this mean for us? What does repentance look like for us? Sometimes it may mean repentance looks like when you've stolen or taken from someone, tangibly, you return and restore it to them. You don't just say, oh, I'm sorry, I feel bad and not give it back or try to repay them. Repayment demonstrates a change of a heart and a life. But but sometimes the sins that we do against God, against his property, if we understand scriptures in a uh, in the, the full picture, everything is God's. Our bodies are God's temple. Other people, God has created, they're His. When we sin and wrong them in the ways that we maybe use our bodies differently than God would have us to use, what does it look like there for repentance occur? Think about, for, for instance, uh, sometimes when, when people think about uh, pornography, it's viewed as, oh, it's not really hurting anybody. I'm not wronging that that person that I'm engaging with in print or digital form. What does it look like then to, to show this fruit of repentance? Maybe what it, it looks like instead of 
pay, payment of some sort is, again, this idea of letting go of our sin and our lives beginning to reflect a difference and a change. Of beginning to call out to God to help us and beginning to see the fruit of repentance as we begin to leave those things behind. Beginning to change and instead of valuing and looking at another person for what I can get from them, to begin to look and approach people with honor and dignity and respect of how can I begin to pray for others and serve them? Or what does it look like for, for uh, when you've wronged someone with your words and what you've said to them of the fruit of repentance demonstrating and, and, and not just you saying, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry, I feel so bad about that. And then next week, wearing them out again for the same thing over and over. But seeing that our repentance begins to show its fruit through, through changed life and action, demonstrating of this effect of letting go and embracing God in faith. But you may think, I don't know, my guilt still plagues me. I suffer and I wrestle with all the sin that I've done. Notice what else the guilt offering teaches us about the freedom that comes from assurance. You notice what it says in verse 16, that once this is done, the priest will make atonement for him, the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. The same thing is repeated over in verse 7 and verse 8, or in verse 18. And in verse 19, we use the, the, the footnote to make it a little clearer to understand what's, what's going on. Um, this is a guilt offering. And uh, it, God communicates to this person, he has paid in full his compensation to Yahweh. It's interesting that this one in particular is one where no, it, nobody knows what, how they've sinned. If you sin and you don't know and you're, you're plagued by guilt and shame, you, you think you may have sinned against God, but you're not sure. God says, bring, bring a guilt offering to me. Offer the ram. Come to me in confession and repentance. And you will be forgiven. Your sin will be atoned for. I will consider myself compensated and paid back in full. Your debt has been removed. You have been freed. Let go of the shame. Let go of the guilt. This, this fits back into us understanding how this idea of atonement works. Remember, of, of this relationship being restored with God. We've talked about it a little bit as being purification and of cleansing us of our sin. But another aspect of atonement is this idea of ransom. Penalties being paid for. But in this case, what's happening is the ransom occurs by the king graciously accepting a lower penalty a lower payment than what was deserved. A ram. A ram? Seriously? Is compensation paid in full to dishonoring the king of the universe? The holy, unapproachable one. You see, what, what would begin to occur is if, as we're doing this, time after time would come up into our minds. That should come up. I should be paying back much more than this. 
I should be in much more in, indebted to this king than just a ram. But in his grace and his mercy, he's decided to accept a, the death of a ram as compensation in place for my debt. How is this possible? How could a just God just overlook this debt? A lot is going unpaid. Where's the financial fudging going if God were to get an audit? It's interesting as we look in the rest of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 53, um, the prophet Isaiah is talking about this servant who is coming, a suffering one, who would suffer and die on behalf of his people to deliver them. And in Isaiah 53.10, it's something special and unique about this servant and the way that he is described. It says, It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. It's the same term, guilt offering, that we're looking at in Leviticus 5 and 6. Isaiah is saying, when the suffering servant comes, God will crush him. He will suffer. He will die as that guilt offering, as that reparation offering, as that compensation for the debt. We've talked about this before. See, the way that it's working is that when God's accepting these rams as compensation, we're writing a check to God. Here, God, here is the check for what we owe you for sinning against you. But our debt pales in comparison to the check that we wrote. If God were to cash it then, we would have been overdrawn. Just like the guy who tried to buy his cigarettes in the infinite quadrillions. Yet what God is saying is that I'm looking forward to a compensation that is coming that will perfectly and totally pay for this debt. That suffering servant is Jesus. Jesus, who would suffer and die as the perfect guilt offering in our place to satisfy our debt that we owed to God. But that's, that's not it. That's not as, as far and as significant as the debt that Jesus paid goes. Because the way that the Scriptures talk about it is when Jesus dies for us, when He pays this compensation, we don't just make it back to zero. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It talks about Jesus' work on behalf of His people in this way. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus takes on all of your debt. The quadrillions and bazillions and quintillions and Googleplexillions, whatever number you want to think about. You could never have paid it off. Jesus takes that on Himself. He suffers and dies in your place. Not only is your debt zero, your account has now been credited. 
to the infinite amount the other way, because now you are seen as the righteousness of God. Jesus has completely and fully not just taken care of your debt, but invested you with the riches of being welcomed into being part of the family of God. Who who is a God that would do this? Our rebellion means we are indebted to Him in uh, unpayable amounts. Yet in His grace and in His mercy, in Leviticus, He gives us this pattern of, of seeing how our sin can be dealt with through letting go of our sin and embracing God in faith and the promises that He gives through the offering. To look forward to the day when God Himself would be the one who pays the debt that we could have never fulfilled and completely credits to our account the righteousness of Christ. This is good news. Do you view your sin that way? Sometimes we ask kids when they're being interviewed uh, to either be admitted to the Lord's table or to become members of the church. Are you a big sinner or are you a little sinner? How would you answer that question? Are you a big sinner or a little sinner? Is your debt just a little bit? You think you could pay it off? Or is the weight of the burden of your debit so big, of your debt so big, that someone else has to step in? That's the beauty of the Gospel. Acknowledging, I can't do this on my own. And saying, Jesus, please redeem and save me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You that the Gospel is through every page of the Scriptures that uh, even here within Leviticus, uh, we find and see the grace and the mercy of our God who would uh, write off the debt of us sinners against You. We thank You for Your mercy that You've shown us in Jesus and pray that You would continue to move us towards greater love of Him. In Christ's name, Amen. As Jesus was on His way,